This podcast is sponsored by Legacy Seeds. Legacy Seeds helps build the legacy of your farm by offering custom, high-performing food and feed solutions with the optimal combination of yield and quality. Their Wisconsin-based breeding and development team consistently produces award-winning seed. Visit LegacySeeds.com to download their seed guide and learn more about their customized forage solutions for your farm. From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting-edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back to The Dairy Show. I am your host, Lisa Benke, and on this week's episode, we are joined by Bill Cholkas of Cholkas Dairy, located in Thorpe, Wisconsin. Welcome, Bill. Bill is the fourth generation to milk cows on this same piece of land. And I'd like to back time up here, Bill. Walk us through that. Your great-grandfather is the one who settled this property, and they had an interesting journey to get there. Cows have been milked there since 1903. Bill, tell us how Cholkas Dairy got started. Well, I guess my great-grandpa left Poland in search of a better life. He left his wife and kids there, told them that he was heading to America, and he will send for them when he has a plot of land and a better life. So he came over to America, ended up in Chicago, worked at the McCormick Deering plant. I think it was 1901 when he came over, worked at a McCormick Deering plant for a couple of years and found a, a track of land up in Stanley, Wisconsin, that through the Federal Land Grant Act, they were selling from the, from the lumber company. So him and his four brothers went up to Stanley and I guess claimed or bought 40 acre plots for themselves. Um, he worked, <laughs> I think it was three more years to build a house and to build a barn and get a farm going. And then he first sent for his wife and children. They actually came over, I do believe it was in 1903 or 1904. He picked them up in Stanley. And I guess that was the beginning of, of the Chocas Dairy. <laughs> When we think back to the situation, he didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have GPS. He did not have a chainsaw. He's clearing all of that land. I'm sure he and his brothers used cross saws to take down all the trees to clear the land, as you say. And then they're planting their own wood to build the structures that they they needed. So a dairy barn, a, a house. And then they're acquiring cattle. It's not like you can go to the sale barn and pick up 50 head. So I just think it's remarkable, the start and the tenacity. You talked about leaving the family at home. We're going to get to this, Bill, but I I truly believe that there is a special gene in your family that allows for great tenacity and foresight. That's how your family has been so successful through these years. If you could take a moment now to just Describe to us what the dairy looks like today. Well, today we milk about 180 cows. We have about 230 or 240 total in a parlor freestyle setup. We built that in 2015. We own about 375 acres. We farm right around 1,000 acres of ground. We grow corn, beans, food-grade beans, and alfalfa to feed the cows. We do a little bit of cash cropping with the uh, food-grade beans. We had just built a, uh, a calf barn here two years ago to house our baby calves, and, and I guess, yeah, that's, that's where we're at right now. There aren't many farms that can say this. You are a century farm. You were recognized at the Wisconsin State Fair several years ago. So you're on your way now to being a sesquicentennial farm. But the cows have been milked there all these years. And I guess I'm curious, it's been four generations. And right now, the fifth generation is looking to take over the farm. 
We're looking for what the secret is here, Bill. How does your family successfully, when you've got multiple brothers, and you mentioned it at the start of this episode, that you had four brothers who traveled here together, and they all farmed together. Um, obviously, they assisted one another with, with getting situated, but your father, or your great-grandfather, rather, was the last of those four brothers standing. The rest elected during the Depression to go back to Chicago and out east to secure jobs that were were paying and not dealing with the dust bowl and the the low mm -hmm. prices that was the depression. So there's that tenacity, Gene. Can you tell us a little bit about how each of those transitions came about? Because I know that there are multiple brothers and sometimes sisters involved. How did each successive generation find its way to ownership? I know that he bought it in 1933. I don't know if there was any other family members that were interested in farming it at that time. I know they had said that it was the, the depression in the 30s and stuff. So I think he just really wanted to farm and keep it going. So he bought it from great grandpa. And it was just a, a small stanchion barn with 20, 25 cows in it. And he bought equipment and stuff and, and kept it going until when my dad bought it. I mean, he was one of, I do believe he was one of nine kids, if I remember right. And there was four or five brothers there also. A lot of them went to the military. I know dad was in the military a little bit, but dad purchased it from grandpa then in 1933. And it was a fairly, you know, fairly small farm yet. It was still only 20, 25 cows or whatever. When he bought it in 63 then, he had it onto the barn once. He had it onto the barn a second time. I guess when I was born, he built the new house. They were still living in the house, which was actually a lumber depot is what it was. That was the old house. So he built that. Then he built silos and bought some more land and then built a machine shed in 82. And he just was constantly striving to, to get that farm up and running and, and bigger and better every day. He just had that passion to to make things happen, to see the better of everything and to make it to make it better. He had his struggles. He had asthma his whole life. He had bad knees. He had kidney cancer at one time. But through all that, mom and dad just really wanted to raise children on a farm and do a good job. They raised 10 of us. I'm one of 10 kids. So out of us 10 children, we all went through the barn. We all worked together. We played sports in school. We did all that stuff. But they, at the time, it come to the point where the older ones all moved on and did something different. Many of my brothers and sisters farmed too with their husbands and wives. So when it come down to it, I was the one left to decide if I wanted to take the farm over or not. And I, I knew since I was young that I wanted to farm. You know, that was my main goal was just to farm. So when I graduated high school, I'm like, yeah, I'll farm. So I farmed with dad for 10 years before I bought it. But shortly enough, two years after we bought it, dad passed away. So it was just one of those things where I watched dad do everything. I, I helped him with everything. I, I've done everything with him. And his passion for the land and for just for growing crops. And I mean, he was the first one to grow alfalfa around here. In 1963, I do believe he was already growing alfalfa and, and people didn't even know really what alfalfa was in our area, but he knew it was good for the cows. And he just was ditching and tiling and, and, and he just was always trying to find that better way to take better care of the land too. He wasn't one that was gonna, he wasn't okay with watching dirt go into the ditch. He was like, no, he's got to stop that. We don't want to lose our top. So we don't want to, so he was constantly planting trees and we did all that stuff when we were young. So it kind of just rubbed off on us, I guess you'd say, and it, it becomes a passion. So, you know, like I said, when we bought it in 03, then it, it just kind of, I guess, just keeps ballooning, <laughs> keeps going. Each generation has taken very good care of the land. Did your dad work closely with the local extension agent or was he just well-read? Where did all of these practices come about, these best practices that he was applying to that, that piece of land? He had just, uh, I didn't want to say it, a knack for nature and for, I don't know, just 
just to know what's right and wrong with stuff. When he would see, we got a track of about 130 acres of clear land behind the farm here. And I remember as a child chasing cows up through the big washed out gully. It was about a 200 yard, 300 yard gully that all the water washed to and would wash out. Well, that's a good place to chase the cows to the other pasture. So we walked the cows up through that. And and in 82, I was, what was I probably uh, eight years old at the time. You know, I can still remember we probably had 15 foot cliffs on each side of this gully. He didn't like that. He didn't like seeing that wash away. You know? So he designed a waterway, a diversion dam where we built, I mean, he literally built up a big dam and put a pipe through the bottom of it that'll only let out a certain amount of water, 10 inch pipe. And he back flooded all of our, our land, you know, all of our cropland. And the reason he did that was he didn't want to see erosion keep taking place. He knew if he slowed the water down, the water wasn't hurting the land. It, I mean, it wasn't that the amount of water or the water was taken on, it was how fast it washed away. So he figured if he slowed it down, he was going to be able to save it. And when he built it, he, he had talked to NRCS and stuff at that time. I don't know what it was called, but they told him that it would never work, that you'd have to be cleaning this basin out, you know, this this basin dam, you'd be cleaning out every two years because you have so much erosion in it. And to this day, we laugh because it's been in an 82 and we have yet to dredge it out. It still has the pipe, actually the pipe where it goes down inside the ground, there's a eight foot pipe, perforator pipe that comes up and it goes into a conjunction there. Last fall, the rubber conjunction finally fell apart. And I, I went down to look, I'm like, how deep is the mud in here? You know, and the pipe was right there. So I just shoved the pipe back on it, put a new Fernco on it, tightened it up. And I'm like, that's a testament to the pretty much zero erosion we have off of that property anymore. And it used to wash out driveways and roads. And every time it rained, you know, that all that water would come through. But he designed it in a way that when it would fill up, like in the spring, we look like we got a small lake back there and it slowly drains down. If it gets too full, it runs over, but it runs over like a 15 acre waterway to another grass waterway. So it just, everything moves so slow. And then he decided, you know, if that works, why not put tile underneath waterways? Because he goes, the waterway carries a lot of instant water, but why not let it slow down and carry it underground too? So he started putting tile lines right underneath waterways. And to this day, we just did one about three years ago. I told my NRCS, I said, we want to put a, a, a tile line right underneath the waterway. And she's like, well, why? I said, well, if we can slow with a series of little dams, slow it down to go down the pipes to head out underground rather than having to go atop the ground, you just think of the erosion you can save and we put that one in and it, it does it just like he did back in 82 it works really really well so one of those things that um, he just had a knack for that he he really you know self-taught himself but really read a lot just he was one with nature i learned a lot from him i wish he could have been around longer to learn more you have to be proud that the farm was recognized you you and bridget were recognized with the aldo leopold conservation award what a high honor and it's not just gifted to people you have certainly earned that and i know that you've spent a lot of time too creating habitat on your farm. It's not just preservation and protection of your valuable topsoil. You've also been in tune with nature, as you mentioned. When you own land and you see generational farms, you wonder how you can take it to the next generation. You know, how will it be? I always say, oh, yeah, we own the land, but it's not ours. It's We're here for stewards of the good Lord. I mean, it's his land. It's We just got to take care of it for that short time we're on, on earth. And if we don't take care of it, it's not going to be there for the next generation. And what are we leaving? You're supposed to leave things in better shape than what we've seen it when we got it. So that's our big thing is every every time I look at someone, I'm like, can I make it better? Can I slow the water down? Can we can we make better water? You, you see some fields with a lot of dirty water or you see a lot of dirty water in the ditch and you think to yourself, you know, God, can't they just do this? Or, you know, can we just put a ditch in it? So we've been trying to do that. And then, and then we get the whole nature and deer and bear and everything that's around here. So you start to realize that that whole environment, that whole ecosystem 
really depends on how well we do. You know, they need us. We also need them. You know, it isn't just a one-way street. So if we can continue to provide spots for the birds, water for the deer. We do food plots every year. Yeah, some people say it's to get a big buck. Well, you know, we haven't gotten a big buck in quite a few years now, so it ain't really for that. It's, you know, we like to see them, but it's also good for them, you know? So it's, you you know, you got to feed them something. And we leave the corn stand most of the winter for them because you know what? They need to eat all winter. We've had it where you've seen a deer sitting on the edge of the road that can't hardly stand up because of bad winter. And you feel so bad because it's like, you can't do nothing with it. You can't help them. So the only way we can help them is to provide food form throughout the whole year what does an acre or half an acre of corn cost the farmer not a whole lot you know we can go put it in there and in turn if we get to see some nice bucks or get to shoot a nice buck out of it in the meantime or teach the kids how to hunt it's a win-win but it's really it's it's good for the environment we've had the ffa come out plant wildflowers on a section of our land just to for pollinators to try to get more bees involved. We have a neighbor that, that sets up bees on our place every year. This last year I went through the NRCS and they had a pollinator grant thing there that you could plant even more pollinators. And I'm like, well, you know what? I said, that's something that we have a chunk of land that's not getting used for anything. So why not put it into a plot for pollinators? For one, it's a beautiful hill. For two, it'll look really pretty with flowers on it. I mean, I've, I've always liked, you know, just to see and be able to pick wildflowers. And three, if it does wonders for the bees, hey, that's a, that's a good thing for everybody. We try to get involved with that stuff. And and that was things that we had done just, just to ensure good water quality, ensure that I'm doing the best I can for our land. We just celebrated Earth Day and Earth Week this past week. And I think that everything that you and your family have done with the piece of property that you have cared for for generations on end, certainly that is, like you say, a tribute to sustainability and to the environment. And in the meantime, you've got tremendous yields on your property and you're growing all of the feed for the herd. And Bill, let's talk for a minute about the the production, I guess, on your herd. You've seen steady growth in production, and that's all because you're, again, managing every aspect of cow comfort, cow nutrition, and cow genetics, all of that factors into your successes. So talk for a minute about those types of factors that you consider when you're going to make any type of improvement at Chocosteri? A lot of it comes down to the land. I've always said, if you take the good care of the land, the land will take care of you. And if you take care of the the cows, the cows will pay you. So it kind of goes hand in hand. The land, if we, we've always taken good care of it. Good yields, yes. We I guess I always hope I can get better yields than what we're getting. A lot of the struggles come now with the yields is more of the, the weeds and stuff that we're seem to to have to fight with and and some of the weather changing. We don't have the greatest weather seems like lately, Um, but we do strive for really good yields. You know, dad always says, if you grow good alfalfa, you don't have to buy protein, which we really do. We've always, dad kind of prided himself on growing alfalfa and that's kind of been handed down to me. We try to grow really good alfalfa. It's 60% of our diet for our cows is alfalfa. With 40% is the corn side. We really try hard to make milk as efficiently as we can. You know, and that's one of the things when we when we built the barn, we moved out of the stall barn to the freestall barn. I wanted to build it for the cows. I knew my cows could do better than what we were doing in the in the stall barn. So I said, how can I design a barn that will maximize the efficiency of my cows? Because I know my cows can do better. I'm doing really good feed. I just think it's the housing that was the that was holding us back in the old stall barn. And there's nothing wrong with stall barns. A lot of people still milk cows and they do very well with them. My situation in our stall barn needed to change. You know, it, it was just it was just our stall barn. So when we built the parlor and freestall barn, I went to a four-row barn. I do believe, you know, with the air quality, we got higher sidewalls to maximize air quality. There's things like that that you can do that might not 
be perfect for the bank. The bank might say, well, you know, you know, first all your, your costs are higher, but I think it's what we're going to get return on the cows, how comfortable the cows are. Can we make cows last longer? We went with the sand bedding. Um, you know, we put big circulation fans above them. A lot of those things came together and I guess just, how do you want to say it? Just really started to show us what cows were capable of. We've been in our freestyle barn eight years, and I've still got cows from the free, from the old barn in my freestyle barn. I mean, we got cows that are 12, 13 years old milking in our parlor now where I would think by now most of those would have moved on or, or wouldn't have adjusted, and they've adjusted well. I mean, it's amazing how they look just like the young cows. They they get so much exercise. They get, you know, free choice water. I always say it. Our cows are like uh, like when we go to a tiki beach, you know, you, you, they lay on sand, they eat whenever they want, they drink whenever they want. The only thing I ask them to do is go get milk twice a day. Otherwise, they got fans when it's hot. They got shade when it's cold or, you know, or shade when it's hot. They got, it, it's crazy, to, you know, and, and I tell people that they got brushes in the corner. Well, you know, they can go get brushed anytime they want. We provide foot baths for them. We trim their hooves twice a year. So they get a petty and a mani whenever they want. And I mean, it's, it's really, I think that's what really makes the happy cows and it really makes them produce and live long, you know? So a lot of it we try is just the efficiency of it. Just try to maximize the efficiency of everything you can. And I don't know if you ever get done doing that, you know, and believe me, there's things I did that I'm like, well, that didn't work. So we should, we should turn that around, try that, try again. It's not like it just happens overnight. It's something you kind of just keep striving for. And, and you have to admit when you're wrong, you have to admit that, yeah, this wasn't such a good idea. Let's, let's change course and, and make it a good idea. There's always something good that can come out of a bad too. And if people realize that, they can keep they can keep things going the right direction. You're definitely keeping things going in the right direction. I know you touched on it. You've improved the longevity of the herd with this improved housing and with bedding and, and these other things that you're doing that improve cow comfort. But what type of a jump did you realize in production when you moved to the new facility? When we come out of the, the old stall barn, we, we were at about between 65 and 70 pounds of milk. We had some stray voltage issues in there. And just cow comfort issues. And we were probably, oh, 300,000, three to 400,000 somatic cell. And at that time, that really wasn't horrible, but that was when the EU was mandating 400,000 or better. You know, you had to be under. And I knew the cows could do better. I mean, we, we had cows that would produce 100 pounds of milk, but they wouldn't stay up there very long. Once we pulled them up into the freestyle barn, we took our 130 cows up there and just started growing the herd. And you know, within three years, we were up to 86, 87 pounds of milk. And right now we sit somewhere between that 89 and 92 pounds of milk pretty steadily. Somatic cell has been under 100,000 for upwards of five years now. We've got an abundance of heifers we raise. You know, we, we do a good job with the new calf barn and with raising heifers that we haven't had to buy any animals. We've had as of lately or anything like that last five years now. So we're we're actually producing more heifers than what we need. So it's been nice to see our heifers move on and, and build other people's herds. We've got people that call us for, for a few heifers here and there, a few cows here and there, and, and we've been selling milk cows. It's neat to see other young people's herds get built with the, with our cows, with our genetics. It gives you a little sense of pride. And I like to think that it's going to help them out too. It's really going to boost their efforts and let them realize what, what good cows can do for them. It's always rewarding to see one of yours do well for someone else. I love too when we were talking about your calf raising facility. It's like you and and Bridget and and the family. You all take a look at how can we be better. And now you got the herd crank, and then they're over thirty thousand pounds, and the facilities are working out fabulously. It didn't take a sharp pencil to decide that that's going to pay for itself with the longevity and production improvement. But now you took a look at your calf raising, and you thought, boy, we could probably do a little better there with our replacements. Tell us about the thought that went into that. 
that? I guess the kids were out feeding calves uh, in a snowstorm one night, and uh, we had them in hutches, about 40 hutches. You couldn't even hardly find the calves. There was so much snow, so we're trying to shovel the snow out around them. It's dark. The wind is blowing. We're feeding them milk, and the milk is cold, and I'm like, there is got to be a better way. I mean, we raised nice calves out of the hutches, but it was so much work. And our issue with them coming out of the hutches, we take them out of the hutches, wean them and put them in a new barn all at once. And when we did that, the other barn, they would just sit still for like two or three weeks for sure, maybe even a month. They just, they looked like they stopped growing. They just, they didn't do very well. And after about a month, then they would start picking up again. And I always thought it was the other barn. But when we started looking into things, we were just giving them too many changes at once. Calves aren't good with that. They're getting put into a pen of eight other calves. They were by themselves for two months. Now you throw them into a calf barn with eight other calves. You're weaning them and you're giving them a whole new ration and everything, a whole new housing. And it was just too hard on them. So I wanted to build a barn that would kind of take them from baby through two and a half to three months so we can get them the buddy system, you know, get them, get them transferred and get them weaned and all that stuff. So that when we do change them from one barn to the other, it's nothing more than getting four calves put into another group of eight and they move on. So our calf barn, we start them out in individual pens, I guess I would call it, for the first two weeks. There's a group of four of them that are in individual pens. At two weeks, we pull the center panel, so then there's two and two. After a month, we pull the other two panels, so now we have a group of four. Once they're in a group of four, they've got availability of warm water, heated waters in the wintertime. They got their water availability there. We bought the milk pasteurizer. We started feeding pasteurized milk. That has been a huge plus. It's a ventilated barn through Crystal Creek's uh, flip duct system, so we really pay attention to air quality in there. You know, we, we replace air, we figure about five to six times an hour in the barn. It it actually exchanges the air. So that in, has really kept any pneumonias to little or nothing. And like I said, so then once they're in that group of four, um, they're like that. We actually have a hay feeder that we start feeding them a little bit of hay with their grain. And after we go to wean them at two months, they're so used to drinking water, so used to eating their hay and their, their calf feed. You pull them off of milk and you never hear them bellow. You, you don't even know you weaned them, which means that they're really adjusting to what you're doing for them. And then we leave them in that pen for another two more weeks to three weeks after that. So they're basically on that hay and water and calf feed diet. And then they're first ready to be moved to the other barn. So then we'll take two groups of four, put them together in a group of eight, move them to the other barn, put them in a the pen. They're getting fed the same hay, the same pellets, or the same calf feed, water. That's all we changed was their house. And they just keep going. They just keep growing. They just keep moving on, raising so much better calves, uh, so much better heifers. Our first ones that we run through the barn system now with the new calf barn should be coming in fresh, I think, in about another two months. And we're really excited to see if we get a, a little extra kick out of the milk with them. We were told that if you take most of the stresses away from a calf the first six months, you can gain one to two pounds of milk per cow in their adult life. So we're kind of excited. Hopefully that'll push us to 92, 93, 94 pounds of milk. I I think we're going to have to circle back and see if that comes to fruition. I have high hopes that it will. That's everything that you've done has been so measured and thought through. So that being said, what is next on the horizon? It looks like you and Bridget and, and the kids step back and look at what can we do better next time. So now we've got the cows and the calves in optimal facilities. What's next? Well, the one thing is uh, a little bit more of a transition to get Bryce involved in farming. <laughs> when you bring a when you bring a high school, you know, or just out of high school kid in, your own son, you want to give them the best, but you also got to teach them that it takes a lot of hard work and dedication to make this all work. It doesn't just happen. We're gonna have to uh, teach him the ropes, and and I mean, he's done a lot. Don't get me wrong; he's a kid that's been feeding cows for about most of his high school career already. I mean, he knows how to dry tractor, mixer, and all kinds of stuff. But it's just 
he really needs to start sitting down with me for the dairy meetings, for the for the banking meetings, for the the agronomy meetings. That's what he has to start really honing in on, so he understands that. You know, and I think that's more of where we're at right now too. Is kind of that transitioning Bryce and eventually Blake into the farm, hopefully keeping them optimistic about it, telling them how it you know works, what what it takes to make it happen. But also, we can't step back from the dairy or the calf side or the crop side and say, you know what, we did what we needed to do. We also gotta keep up with that too. The whole little bit of no-till that we do, uh, you know, a lot more minimum till, things like that. We're still fixing ditches and driveways and and waterways. We've been doing that every year. I think it seems like every year I got a I got another project that the bulldozer guy looks at me and says, aren't you done yet? And I said, nope, we got to fix this one too next. I guess grow from within. And, and if it requires us to milk more cows because Bryce and Blake come in, we have to be ready for that. We have to have a plan that says, okay, you know, we're getting to that point. Maybe we do need to go to three or 400. I don't know. You know, we do know the the site of the barn and the parlor is set up. We can easily get to four, four and a quarter. We kind of planned that when we built it. We knew somewhere down the line, it might have to get bigger than what we like. You know, when we when we built a calf barn, we made it expandable to double size. So it's, you know, it's 40 calves now. It can be pretty readily, easily available to put 80 calves into it. We just got to add on to it. So I always kind of forward thought some of that stuff. A lot of it though, is just trying to be, I guess, keep being more efficient. And we don't, how do you want to say the dairy industry isn't, isn't paying a whole bunch. We're not getting rich doing it. It seems like we should be getting more than what we do for as hard as we work. So every penny counts. You have to make it real efficient to uh, to make it go. So I guess that's kind of where we're at now, just kind of growing into the next stage of uh, ownership, hopefully the fifth generation. It seems like that's what the tea leaves are saying. You've got daughter Carly, 21 years old, a junior already at River Falls, and she's a dairy science major with that ag biz minor. She's fully invested in the business. Bryce, a senior in high school, you say that he likes to work the the land too. You got one that's going to also carry on that family tradition of stewardship of the land. And that being said too, you do take pride in raising your own feed. And I, I just had to mention with this being the, the dairy show and a, a World Dairy Expo podcast, I know, Bill, that you participated in the Forage Analysis Super Bowl and you placed. Have you got any words of advice for anyone that would be considering sending in an entry to this year's contest? Well, I guess I would tell them, don't be afraid to send a sample if they feel they put up good quality feed. Because when we did it for the first time, I thought there's no way that's for really, really good quality feed. And and we just submitted a sample that we do, not knowing that we actually produce really good quality feed. So I would say if you you produce something that you're proud of, submit it. I mean, I really do. There's nothing wrong with trying. There's nothing and there's nothing wrong with not placing. You won't know until you try it. And that's kind of what we did. We threw it out there and says, well, we'll see what happens. And by our surprise, we placed third the first year we did it. And I was like, wow, you know, this kind of gives you a little bit of a, a little kick that, you know, maybe you do know what you're doing and, and, and maybe you should try again. And when you're chosen from among hundreds of entries from across the country, it's kind of fun to see how you stack up. But congratulations on that, Bill. And I, I interrupted my train of thought here, too. There's two other children we should mention. You've got two other other members of the team. You've got Blake at 15 years old, and you mentioned that he's going to be maybe your herd vet. He's got an interest in the cows. And and then you've got Haley in seventh grade that's taken over Carly and maybe is helping Bridget a little bit with that calf rearing, too. But I wanted to circle back to that calf facility. One thing that struck me is, again, I think this might contribute to your success. You're always thinking about the cow. You're always thinking about the land and what's best for each, but you're also not forgetting 
what's best for the human, the person that's that's carrying out that task day in and day out. And you've made some decisions that definitely spoke to that, that making sure that it's a place that that your family enjoys to work, that you and Bridget enjoy working in. And I guess I'd like to just ask, of all the improvements that have been made to land and property over the years, is there one that stands out in your mind as, as one that maybe propelled Chokas Farms had the furthest? I guess I'd probably have to say moving into that parlor freestyle barn, the amount of milk we got out of cows, the health of the cows, making it, I guess, the health of our family. I mean, being able to work milk easier. If I was still milking in a stall barn, I've got knee trouble. I've got, I had a total shoulder replacement. I've got another shoulder that I had surgery on this last winter. Six surgeries in the last five years with uh, with different things from farm farming as hard as I have and is pushing as hard as I have. But I do think that will, that in general is, is going to help everybody stay a lot healthier. And the other part of it is, is, you know, we do hire some high school kids for milking and stuff. And it's really interesting, you know, they do the school to work program out of the high school and through the FFA. And it's really um, fun, not just to teach our own kids, but to show other people that maybe don't have that farming background that just need a job, but to show them what it takes to care for animals and to really, they become part of the family. It's hard because, you know, they work with our family and they become part of the family. So when they move on, you feel bad because it's like, oh, you're losing someone, you know, but it's really neat when they take as much pride in it as you do. And they really, I guess it really happens here. I mean, every time, every kid we've ever hired and we've hired a, a fair number of them through the years to help us out milking and stuff, they really, um, they really take pride in what they do here. They really, they, they know what we are and they know, you know, what kind of family we are and, and how we're doing things. And they just become part of it. And like I said, when they move on, the one one moved on, we had to give him a picture of a cow and told her we're really sorry and sad to leave, see her leave, but I know it's time for her to move on to bigger and better things. I think they see the pride that we have, and I think it really gives them a good work ethic. It shows them you know, what work can be. It doesn't have to be, oh, I got to go to work. It can be, hey, I get to go to work. That's kind of what we try to instill in not only our own kids, but in a lot of the, the kids that we hire to, to help out on the farm. It's kind of, you know, I think it's good for everyone. And successfully, you've done that. I just have to say, again, the theme for World Dairy Expo this year is dynasty in dairy. And by definition, a dynasty is a succession of people from the same family who play a prominent role in business, politics, or another field, typically four generations or more. Bill, if you aren't the spitting definition of dynasty, I don't know what is. Cholkas Farms is certainly that. And I got to say, the genetics in your family, you talk about the herd genetics, but your family genetics are remarkable. You've got a, an ag engineering gene, you've got a tenacity gene, and certainly nurturing the the land, the, the animals, and the people. I think that is maybe the secret to your success. I guess if you want to call it success, yes, I guess you'd have to say some of that has to do with it. You know, we just like doing what we're doing. I've always loved what I do. And I tell all the kids that ever work for us, we ask them to work for us, if you don't love what you're doing, I don't want you here because you're not going to do a good job. So I said, it's totally up to you. I said, we're perfectly fine if you don't want to work here, if you don't want to milk cows. I said, I get it. But I said, if you're here, you have to love what you do because then we know you're going to do a good job. We tell our kids all the time to love what you do. If you have the passion for it, you enjoy doing it, run with it. It isn't necessarily the money you make. I said, yes, you can make a ton of money, but money has never made anybody happy. You know, you have to love what you do. I'd much rather leave this earth knowing that I did the best I could. I loved every minute of it. And I don't really know, you know, if you have all the money in the world, it doesn't matter, you know? So 
my dad used to always tell us, you know, lead follower, get out of the way. <laughs> that was kind of our motto. We had to hurry up and get stuff done. And he used to always tell us too, he says, I want 110%. I don't just want 100%. Some of that drives us a little too hard sometimes, being that I'm talking about the surgeries that I've had lately about wearing my body out. But I can't honestly say that I regret any of them. You know, as much as your shoulder hurts, as much as your knee hurts, I still love everything I do and I, I still want to do it. I still want to do it, you know, for as long as I can. I, I hope I can do it till the day I, I leave the earth because if I have to sit back and watch it get done, I'm not going to be happy. You know, I, I enjoy doing that stuff. And family is probably the biggest part of it. I know my wife is slowly teaching me to slow down a little bit because she says we can't keep this up, you know. <laughs> so so she's like, you know, it's time to let the, let the boys do a little more and let them do it. And and that's hard as a, as a teacher too or as, as a father is to let your kids make some mistakes. You know, you, you think you can keep them from making all of them, but just let them make some of them. They learn from it. That's how I learned. That's how, I mean, I'm sure my dad scratched his head a few times and says, what was my son doing? But, you know, that's just how it is. That's how you live and learn. But I do think that's part of what drives us. And and like I said, and if I guess if that's success in everyone's eyes, then I guess, yeah, we would be successful, you know, and in, in, in my eyes, it's just something I enjoy doing. Bill, I have no doubt that the fourth generation to till the land and milk the cows on your property have left their mark. And there's no doubt that that fifth generation is going to do the same. They're following in some pretty amazing footsteps. So we thank you for being part of the dairy show today. And we wish Cholkas Dairy just all the best in the future. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We want to give a final thank you to the sponsor of this episode, Legacy Seeds. For top performing corn and alfalfa forage solutions, visit LegacySeeds.com and download their seed guide today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you. 